this morning comes from Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you, only you, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath, in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to open up this morning by telling you about a moment of joy in my life. Um, this is a moment from when Ruby was a little bit under two years old. She's embarrassed in the nearly front row right now. Um, at this time, I, Melissa, I think, was still pregnant with our son, Ambrose. And on my day off one day, I decided we needed to spend some daddy-daughter time. And so I took her over to Harvard Square, and Ruby, who had not too recently learned to walk, decided she was going to try her luck on the brick sidewalks. Um, you see she's got a very fashionable monkey backpack on, that the tail doubles as a leash. Um, I used that to make sure she wasn't going to stumble into the road. Um, but the reason why this is uh, uh, something that stands out in my memory, because this was the day that Ruby discovered her pockets. <laughs> and she put her hands in her pockets, and then for the entire day, wandered around town without taking them out. And she, in my memory, she had that smile on her face the entire time. Now, this is a moment of joy for me, because when I look back at this time, when I place myself back in this moment, I still have this visceral response in my body. I can still feel it when I think about this moment. I feel that feeling of deep gratitude. When I think of this moment, it, it's as if I can feel God's love for me, his love for my daughter, his love for our relationship with each other. And even though this moment was a long time ago, it's long past, when I place myself there, I can still experience God's joy and delight and love for me right now. It connects me to how he feels about me right now. That's a memory that even, it jump starts my awareness of God's love for me. A moment that reminds me that I have a heavenly father who delights in me. And so do you. 
And that's why we are studying these psalms over the next few weeks in this series that we're calling Songs of Joy. Because one of my desires for us as a church as we move forward is that we would increasingly become a community that is defined by joy. That we would be filled with joyful connections and a a joyful relationship with God himself. And, And this passage we're looking at, Psalm 95, it connects us to the joy that radiates from the face of our Heavenly Father, just like that memory helps to connect me to it. That joy that I'm talking about is a joy that, that I, as well as the author of this psalm, say we can experience today. It's a joy I want you to experience today. So let's get into it. The first thing I want to show you this morning, I, I want to talk about what joy is. And then I want to talk about what joy does in our lives. And then finally, I want to talk about how we can access that joy. What is joy? What does joy do? And how can we access it? Pretty simple, right? So let's, let's jump in. What is joy? Well, we could all tell you that joy, we talked about this last week, it's not the same thing as happiness. Last week we said happiness is it's fleeting, it's temporary, it's wonderful. We all love happiness, but happiness, it's a fickle friend. It's here one moment and gone the next. You expect happiness to show up, and it doesn't. We know joy is something different. Joy isn't quite like that, but what is it? What is joy? Well, the theme in this psalm can clear that up for us a little bit. It's a theme, actually, it's in this psalm, but it shows up all over the book of Psalms. And maybe, my guess is, you may never have noticed this theme before. It's a theme that's kind of hidden in our English translation, but it is simply this. Joy is relational. Joy is relational. Happiness is temporary. Happiness is circumstantial, but joy is not circumstantial. Joy is actually rooted in our relationship with God and with his people. Joy is rooted in our relationship with God and his people. And let me, let me tell you what I'm talking about here. Uh, okay, uh, verse 1, it says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Okay. In case we haven't said this already, the book in our Bible that's called the Psalms uh, is a unique book in all of Scripture. You know, some books of the Bible, they're books of history. Some books of the Bible, they are letters that were written to different churches. Some books of the Bible, they're collections of wisdom sayings. But the Psalms, uh, it is a book that is a collection of songs. It's a group of songs collected through the history of Israel, and each one of those songs is a little different. They, they have different purposes. Some of them are similar styles. Some of them are the same genre, but they're all different songs. And this song, Psalm 95, is a song that would have most likely been sung during the Feast of Tabernacles. Anybody remember what the Feast of Tabernacles is? 
It was a feast that took place every year in the nation of Israel where the people would remember the years that they wandered in the wilderness, where they built temporary shelters. It was a harvest festival. It was a big celebration every year. And this is one of the songs that they would sing when they gathered and remembered the the great harvest that they've received compared to those many years they spent in the wilderness. And what I want you to pay attention to right here at the beginning of this passage is where it says in verse 2, come before him. Come before him with, with thanksgiving, with shouts of joy. Simply, very simple thing right at the outset that the writer of this song wants us to know is that when we stand before God, it is appropriate to feel joy. Pretty simple, right? When we stand before God, it's appropriate to not just feel joy, but even to shout, even to sing for joy. Now, joyful shouting, that's not something we're known for as Presbyterians, right? The other day, I went over to Del Sur for lunch, and um, it was funny. You know, if you've been there before, just like most restaurants, they have some music that plays kind of in the background while you eat. But whatever was happening that day in the kitchen, they were listening to their own music, and the guy who was cooking the food was just having a fantastic time. And as I'm sitting there kind of by myself, reading, eating lunch, I hear this guy keep going, Aha! I was like, man, i got to go see what's happening back there. That sounds like where the fun is. That's the kind of joyful shouting even that's being talked about in this passage. That people are overflowing, filled with joy in the presence of God. There's another verse that has a similar idea, maybe a little bit more famous. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, it says, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, what I want you to learn here this morning is that in that verse and in the one I just read to you from our passage, there is the same Hebrew word behind it. And it's this word right here. It is pane. When it says, let us come before him, those little ones that I've circled in the middle, that word is pane. It literally means face. I looked up this definition in one of the many kind of theological dictionaries I have, and it says that this word means the presence or proximity of someone understood in terms of their face, with the implication being that you are in, before, or in front of them. Now, this word I I pointed out, uh, I know it looks unfamiliar, I pointed out because it's all over the book of the Psalms. And our translation is great. It, it, makes, it, it tells you what it means when it says, come before him. But when you add that nuance to it, when you understand that behind that word is before his face, doesn't it hit a little differently? Isn't it just seem a little different than just being in his presence, right? I can be in the presence of my wife, right? I'm in her presence quite a bit. When we're laying on our own separate sides of the bed at night, 
watching our own little screens, not talking to one another. We're in each other's presence at that moment, right? But it's a totally different thing when I'm in front of her face. It's a completely different sensation entirely when I am the subject of her gaze, when I'm on the receiving end of her smile, when she's looking at me and I know that she is happy to be with me. That's what I love about this other translation of that verse. The the NIV, it says, you fill me with joy in your presence. The ESV, it says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. But Eugene Peterson, the the Hebrew scholar, he says, his, his phrasing of it is, I'm radiant from the shining of your face. Now here's what all that means for us. The difference between this fleeting, circumstantial thing called happiness and this steady joy is that joy is relational. Joy comes from our relationship with God. It comes from the reality that Scripture tells us that Christ, in Christ, God's face is always shining on us. It's always looking at his people, and he is delighted to be with us. Even in our darkest moments, even when we know we've messed up, even when we have fallen short and gone back to that sin that we hate again, even when we have made fools of ourselves, when we're embarrassed, when we're filled with shame, it says because Christ has fully paid for our sins, because we are covered in his righteousness, by his blood shed on the cross, it means that when our God sees us, he fixes his gaze on us, And the expression on his face is one of love, compassion, tenderness. The way a loving parent looks at their child. In the New Testament, the Apostle John adds to this. He helps us to understand this idea in in 1 John chapter 3. He says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Do you follow? Do you see the connection that I'm trying to make here? John is saying that the reason why we can rest in God's presence, even when our hearts condemn us, even when we feel uncomfortable, even when we want to run away, it's because God is actually greater than our hearts. His salvation is unchanging. It's more reliable than our actions. It's more reliable than our circumstances. It's more steady than our state of mind. That's why joy is is different from happiness, because joy is relational. It's not circumstantial. Joy comes out of this unbreakable access that we have into the presence of our loving Father. Before his face, there is fullness of joy. Even when your heart condemns you, 
he welcomes you. So what is joy? Well, here is the simple definition. Joy is the experience of God's face looking on us with love. Joy is the experience of God's face looking on us with love. Okay, well, that's the definition. What does it matter? What, is, what does joy do for us? Why, what difference does this make? Well, as we go through this psalm, what you see is when we are aware of God's face shining on us, we worship. Verse 3, for the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. So, in these verses, as the people sing praises to God, then they start to realize he is so much greater than everything else that they can see in all of creation. He's, he's greater than the depths of the earth. He's greater than the peaks of the mountain. They say he's even greater than the sea. Now, they, the sea may not stand out to you as being of any particular note, but in the ancient world, the sea actually represented chaos. The sea was uncertain. The sea was dangerous. And if you're like me, and a couple of weeks ago, maybe you fell down like a big internet rabbit hole trying to learn about that submersible. Did anybody else do that? Reading all about the Titanic and all about the ocean and all these things. You, I realized that they actually knew something back then. <laughs> the sea is pretty scary. The sea is frightening. It's over overwhelming. Even today, there's so little that we know about it. The sea, though, in Scripture, when it comes up, you need to hear it is a representation of, of the unknown, of chaos. Now, even though I know the sea is dangerous, I don't actually lay awake at night worrying about the sea, especially not you know, in this part of the country. But there are some other forces of chaos out there that can get me pretty distracted from the gaze of the Father. For me, it has always been, I've shared this plenty of times, but one of the hardest ones for me is interpersonal conflict. When I think there is somebody who is unhappy with me, man, that eats me up. When I know that there's a situation where I've got to go and, and confront somebody, man, I, I lay awake, I worry, I wonder. What does it for you? Maybe it's money worries. Maybe it's fears about your future. Maybe it's worrying about your relationships and what other people think about you. Maybe it's some report on your job, or, or maybe it's grief. Maybe it's the pain of someone you've lost. Maybe it's an illness. Thinking about your children. What is the chaos? Whatever that force is, we are invited here to build a path from that pain into joy. 
we are invited, even in that moment, even in that place of anxiety and fear, to lift up our eyes and see our good shepherd. Did you see that in verse 7? That he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Now, we live in a world today where people will present you with a million lists of practices and self-help books and things to do, and they promise these things will change the way you think, that they'll change the way that you act, that they will improve your life. But Scripture tells us it's actually worship that changes our lives. Because so much of our sin, so much of our anxiety, so much of our wrestling comes from the simple fact that we are detached from the sense of God's presence in our lives. We lack connection to that joyful gaze. We don't realize that he's with us, that he's there. We cannot see that, that our good shepherd is present in the midst of the hard times. And the solution that scripture gives us over and over again is not simply to try harder, but it's to come before him. To start walking that path into his presence more frequently. You know, let, let me put it this way. You know how the, the carpet or the floor in front of your couch is all worn out because you're sitting there all the time watching TV? Well, what if the, the pathways that were connecting our hearts to the joy of the Lord were that worn out. Our lives would look a lot different, wouldn't they? If we were waking up each morning and coming before his face with a, a joyful shout, if we were taking a moment in the middle of the day to pause and and take a deep breath and to recognize that whatever has happened to us since we woke up, God is still there looking on you with love. If we were going to bed at night, taking time to reflect on what has come throughout the day and pausing to express deep gratitude for all the good things, even amidst the bad. I think all of our lives would look different. I know mine would. Because the joy of the Lord, it doesn't just comfort us in our sorrows, but it transforms the way we live. The joy of the Lord transforms the way we live. And this psalm, really, if you think about it that way, it's, it's a picture of this powerful joy engine that fuels the Christian life. Our faith is not just about trying harder to be a good Christian. You know, willpower, it can do a few things for you, but it can only get you so far. Our faith, it's not about willpower. It's about being transformed by the power of a holy God who is bigger than the troubles that we face, who is a shepherd, who is present with us, guiding us through them. And if we could just learn to feel his gaze on us in the midst of those storms, 
while we're going through that chaos, if we could be sensitive to his Holy Spirit dwelling in us, like, like Paul says, crying out constantly, Abba, Father, you belong to the Lord. He is your Father. He is here, reminding us that, that we belong to him. That he rules over the highest peaks of the earth, the, the, the lowest depths of the sea, over the highest aspirations of our lives and the darkest fears of our hearts. If we could just get to that place where we are standing before his shining face until we've worn out the floors in the throne room of grace, that's how change happens. That's what joy does. It transforms us. So then how do we get it? Well, this psalm, it ends in a surprising way, actually. Um, verse 8, it says, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. All of a sudden, we go from this very joyful song, this very celebratory song, to kind of a bleak memory. It ends with God saying that he swore to these people that they should never enter his rest. It's kind of an awkward ending. I looked up the musical version of this. You know, Robert mentioned some other traditions. They sing the Psalms, but they have metric versions. And I found out they actually cut it off at verse 7. <laughs> Because it makes for an awkward song. That story of, of Masa and Meribah, it's from a moment back in Israel's history when God had miraculously freed all the people from Egypt. And Moses was leading them. And yet, while they were following him through the wilderness, they started to grumble and to complain. It says, the people were thirsty for water. And so they grumbled against Moses and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And then God miraculously provided water. And it says at the end of that story that Moses called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled. And because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Okay, so why did they put that at the end of this song? Well, imagine the occasion. I mentioned that this was something that you might sing at the Festival of Tabernacles. Imagine the scene, you and your family members and your friends, you've built these temporary shelters, you've decorated them, you're camping out under them all week long, singing and dancing, and the harvest has come in, all your favorite foods are available. If that's your only experience of those tabernacles, you might be tempted to kind of glorify those days that took place in the wilderness. Thinking about how God had miraculously brought us out of slavery and now we live in this great land of abundance. Maybe you'd only thought about that history in terms of a party. But the wilderness was not a romantic time. This is a song about responding to God with joyful worship and how that worship transforms our lives. But the wilderness, it was a time when everybody failed at that. They doubted. 
they feared. They grumbled, they complained, and they turned away. And as a result, they missed out on the abundance. Because they refused to trust their shepherd in the midst of the chaos, they missed out on the joy. And so this psalm, it ends with a sobering call, but an important one. Because this is a call not just for them, the people who lived way back there and and heard this psalm read thousands of years ago. But this is a psalm, this is a call for us. It even gets quoted again in the New Testament, just in case we might forget it. He says, today, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. Now that's a warning, but it's also an invitation. Today... If you hear his voice, open your heart. And that's an amazing thing. It means that today, God still speaks. Today, God still pursues. Today, God is still the good shepherd. Today, God's face is still shining on you. So put yourself in a posture to receive. Now, how do you do that? How do you hear from God? How do we hear his voice? How do we see his face? How do we know if God is speaking to us? Those are big questions. Those are important questions. But the first thing I'll say is, well, two things. First, we know God's speaking to us through his word. He speaks to you now through the promises that they're living and active and they are relevant for your life right now. In his word, we learn just how much he loves us. We especially learn that through the good news of Jesus. The book of Hebrews, it says that the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks. It says it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Does anyone remember that story? The story of Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel. And it says that afterwards, the blood, God tells him that Abel's blood was crying out from the ground. It was crying for justice. But scripture tells us that Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Jesus' blood cries out to God for your forgiveness. It cries out to God for your mercy. Jesus' blood means that he died so that you could live. His blood was shed so that you could be made clean. The blood of Jesus speaks for you today. It invites you to come and to be made clean. Do you hear it? If you do, don't harden your heart. Turn to him. Call to him. Enter into his joy this morning. Don't wait another minute. He speaks to us through his blood. He speaks to us through his word. And and secondly, he speaks to us through one another. And this is the last thing I'll say, but I want you to see this, that, that this psalm is written in the plural. It's a song that we're supposed to sing together. It's a song for worship. And we are so conditioned now today to do everything the, the same way we, we look at our phones, right, as isolated people looking at things that have been curated for our own specific tastes. 
but all the verbs that I just read to you, they're plural. It doesn't just say today if you hear his voice. It says if y'all hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. That might be the main point of application for us this morning. Because I really believe that if we were to become the kinds of people who are doing what I'm talking about, constantly receiving that joyful gaze of God, if we're constantly dwelling in his acceptance and his love for us, then we're going to become the kinds of people whose eyes light up when we see each other. We're going to become the kinds of people who are extending that same joyful, gracious welcome we've received, we're going to be giving that back to each other, won't we? So right now, let's just do a quick little exercise. If you're a Christian here in this room, I just want you to close your eyes for a moment, and I want you to picture the gaze of the Father as we've seen it laid out here in this passage. I want you to take a deep breath. And I want you to hear him say, I know that your life has been filled with chaos. I know that there are many things to be worried about. I know there's been a lot of ups and downs. But you are mine. And I love you. You have been forever washed by the blood of my son. And I am delighted to see you. Now, I want you to open your eyes, and I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to say, and I'm delighted to see you, too. Now, I know you said it, but here's my question. Did you hear it? I know you said it, but but my question is, did you feel it? Don't harden your heart. This is what it means to be the body of Christ. We are the lived out expression of God's joyful gaze in this world. And the more we experience it with each other, the more we're going to show it. The more we're going to be able to come into this place and come before him with shouts of joy. The more we're going to experience that welcome and share it. That's how we get the joy. From his word, from his son, and from each other. And that is how we're going to see this world transformed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your blood speaks a better word over us. I thank you, Lord, that you don't let us define our lives by what we think of ourselves, by what other people think of us, but you define us by what you've done. And God, I know there are people in this room who need you in their life. They don't know you. And so I pray right now for whoever's in this room, Lord, that you would call them. Lord, I I pray that you would forgive the sin. That you would give them a new life. That you would welcome them into your presence. I pray that they would experience your welcome from the people in this room. And Lord, we ask that that joy engine would rev up and that you would make this a place where people see you we pray in